All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 3. Whoever left this for me, this little, what is it called, Pez, would you please leave the candy in there next time? I would like the candy, not just the car. Thank you. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 13 through 30. I didn't get a chance to grab one of you English people and get the the correct pronunciation of this author, so forgive me as I probably butcher his name. But G.K. Chesterton tells of an important discovery that a main character in a fictional work had discovered. This work is called Cat's Cradle, and it's by Kurt Vonnegut. Good. I did pretty good. Now, this main character gets a hold of an important book, and it's one of these books that's for the ages. You know, one of those books that everyone needs to read and has profound insight into the mysteries of this world and the mysteries of this life. And this main character gets a hold of the book, and the title of the book is What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth Given the Experiences of the Past Million Years? It's a long, long title, but he gets a hold of the book. He tears it open, the front cover. He anxiously tries to find the first page. He reaches for the first word, and it took a process maybe of one or two seconds. And the reason it did is because this book only consisted of one word. What is the hope for mankind? What, what hope has mankind learned over these past million years? And the one word answer was nothing. Nothing. And he closed the book. And that was it, right? Daniel 3 is written to a certain kind of person. Daniel 3 is written to the certain kind of person that understands what nothing really means. Daniel 3 is written to the person that has gotten to the end of all hope. He's run out of hope. There is no hope in him or her. And this person knows what nothing feels like. He knows what nothing looks like, knows what nothing is experienced in his relationships, in his job, in his work, in his own heart. He knows what nothing is. And Daniel 3 is written for that kind of person, a person without hope. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now, the last time we were together, we knew that Nebuchadnezzar had built this huge golden giant, kind of ironically coming right off the vision that God had given Nebuchadnezzar about what was going to take place in the future before the great king would come and destroy all manly kingdoms. Well, he decides to build this great giant golden giant, and here's the response to it. Uh, There were three friends that didn't bow down like they were supposed to. In verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought these men before the king. Remember, the only reason why the king knows about these three is that there are these tattletalers in the kingdom. Jealous guys that were really jealous about the position and the gifting and the blessing that God had given these Jewish exiles, and they got jealous, and so they they saw that they didn't bow down, and they tattletailed the Nebuchadnezzar. So that's how they're found out. So it wasn't because, I'm now starting to preach, it wasn't because these three were blatantly staying before everybody, we're not bowing down to your gods. In fact, no one would have known. It was quiet 
It was strictly between them and the Lord. But three or some tattletales brought them out. So let's look at this. But when it is brought out, they do what they're supposed to do. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? doesn't leave time for them to response. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more hotter than it usually is heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they're thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Now, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out, and they came here from the fire. And the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors, they all gathered together, and they saw, you can imagine, they're poking them. They're lifting up their hair. They're looking at their hats. Uh, they saw that no fire had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. They had no smell of fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar announced and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, delivered his servants who trusted in him, and who even set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. Any people, nation, language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we ask your blessing on this word that it would work its wonders in our lives. We pray especially for those who are hopeless this morning. They know what nothing feels like and what it tastes like and what it smells like and what it feels like. 
So, oh Lord, would you give and grant hope, a true hope? Would you give and grant us eyes to see this hope? And grant us hearts, Lord, that, that embrace this hope. And by embracing are deeply transformed so that the hope actually takes feet in real relationships and in real relating to this world, real relating in community and fellowship with your people and a real mission to bring this hope to those who do not have it as well. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Daniel 3 is here to do a specific task. Remember, when you look at the Scriptures, you want to think of the Scriptures not only in gaining knowledge about them or giving us factual data, but the Scripture is actually doing something. It's actually accomplishing something because the Scriptures are living. The Scriptures are working. The Scriptures are like a seed that's imperishable. It's planted in your heart. It actually produces fruit. So the Scriptures are at work in you. And that is so comforting for us. Because no matter what state you come in and no matter what condition you come in, you can know that the scripture is coming to work in your life, that God is moving towards you and that he's going to do a good work in your life. He even will overcome your resistance. That's how powerful this is. So take hope and take heart, even from the beginning here, those of you that seem to lack it. Because this passage is for you because what it's doing is actually going to push in and give freely a new hope. So the target here is for all of us who face situations that are utterly hopeless. You have a bullseye on your chest. And this passage says, I'm going after you. Okay? So take heart even from the beginning. This passage is for you. And one, this hope that's going to give to you is one that doesn't fail and it doesn't disappoint and it never falls short. You and I both know that there are certain hopes in our lives, human hopes that we get to, and we we put a lot of emotional and a lot of our energy and our trust and our time and our treasures in them. And then they do fail. They do disappoint. It's like they just disappear like sand in our hands and we can't grasp them and we try to and they just run out and then they leave us heartbroken. They do sour our soul. But the hope that's being given here doesn't disappoint, as the Scripture says. It never falls short. In fact, this hope, when you get your hands and your heart around it, it does things like save you. It does things like justify you. Make you actually right before a holy God. And not only that, those of you that are Christians, when you get your mind and your hands and your heart around this hope, it actually changes you. It furthers your growth and grace in this world. There's so many temptations for the Christian today to go get their hope in something other than this hope. To get your hope in some spiritual secret and to get your hope in some new spiritual technique to grab the latest seminar and go to the next speaker and attend the next church and find the next spiritual buzz that will give you some sort of hope. But this true hope actually carries you. You don't carry it. It helps you. It transforms you. It works for you. That's the hope found in here. All right, so how do you find this new hope in Daniel 3? 
Well, the answer is found in three movements to one story. So if we're going to look at what's the dominating idea, what's the big idea of Daniel 3? It's finding new hope. But there are three. That's the story. Finding new hope. There are three movements in the story that are telling you how. Our last time together, we looked at the second movement. Remember what the second movement was? It was the movement of the fiery furnace. And in this fiery furnace, what we saw is that this furnace actually leads us to the end of all human hope. The fiery furnace in the Old Testament and the fiery furnace in this passage is referred to over and over again of something that you get in and I get in that's impossibly, it's impossible for a human to save themselves from. The picture here is of an ultimate captivity and an ultimate exile and an ultimate slavery and an ultimate bondage, an ultimate fiery furnace from which there is no hope. And so the first movement, or we should say the second movement, the first movement we're going to look at next week, and that's the Nebuchadnezzar and all of us. And we're going to find that even in the Nebuchadnezzar and all of us, this passage is going to help you find hope. But for those of us now, it's addressing those of us, all of us, in one way or another, are in a fiery furnace. Well, how do you have hope in a fiery furnace? Well, the fiery furnace is saying you have hope by realizing you have no hope. The fiery furnace is actually taking you to the end of your hope rope. You're done. It's run out. You have nothing left. You can't hope in your goodness You can't hope in your work and your sincerity. You can't hope in a sentimental warmth towards the Lord. You can't hope in some good feeling towards Him. You can't hope in any form of obedience to Him. You can't hope in your faith before Him. You can't hope in relationships that you have with people. Your spouse isn't your hope. You can't hope in your possessions. You can't hope in the position you have in life. You can't hope in your gifts and your talents and your abilities. There is no human hope. And the fiery furnace helps us go there. Because how many of you will go there on your own? I didn't wake up this day thinking, I'm going to walk to the end of the hope rope. I will never take myself there. You will never take yourself there. So God will take you there. Through a fiery furnace. And he does this to do good to you. Okay? Alright. Paul puts the fiery furnace picture of captivity and bondage and slavery and exile and death together. He puts all these Old Testament pieces and these Old Testament pictures of the fire and the worm. And he says, this is what it means. Systematizes it very clearly. The wages of sin are death. That's the ultimate fiery furnace. All Old Testament pictures and pieces point to that. Okay? Now, you find new hope in the second movement by facing this fire honestly. Look at verse 17, the very beginning. I mean, how do these men respond, these three friends? They respond by saying, if this is so. So be it. This is so. And face, particularly, the first part of 17a is talking about having your person saved, having your possessions saved, having your 
your position in the kingdom saved, having earthly temporal goods saved, because their first response in 17, it says, look, if it's so, our God whom we serve is certainly able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace in this sense. He's certainly able to deliver us limb and loved ones, goods and kindred, position and possessions. He's certainly able to do this, King. Temporal earthly fires that we all face, earthly sufferings that we all face. He's certainly able to do that. But when we get to 17b, we see that there's some other deliverance that's more than just securing the safety of your life and your limb and your loved ones and your goods and your kindred and your possessions. And that's why he says, but he will deliver us ultimately from your hand, O king. And just so we don't miss it, he says in verse 18, but if he doesn't, but if not, If I lose life and limb, if I lose loved ones, if I lose temporal earthly goods, we ain't serving you and we ain't bowing down to your gods. That's in Texan. Okay. So there's an ultimate deliverance here as well. There's a temporal earthly fire, top level fire. The one we face, but one that we all face, is this everlasting fire. And the second movement is saying, face the fire. Don't go numb it with being medicated. Don't go numb it in front of the TV. Face the fire, if this is so. Face it. Because those who face the fire, honestly, are ready for the third movement in the story. The second movement's leading us to the end of all human hope. The third movement is taking those that do say, if this is so, facing the fire, honestly, they take those folks, those of us that that's happening to, and leads us to the hope. Freely gives us the hope in the passage. So let's do this. We're going to look at the second, the third movement, I should say. Remember the first movement, just so you get oriented to the text. What's the big idea? Find new hope. That's the big idea. That's the story. This story is about finding new hope. Three movements. First, face the Nebuchadnezzar and all of us. We'll look at that next week. The other movement was the fiery furnace. This movement that we're moving into now is, let's find out. All right, the three friends. Notice how they respond to Nebuchadnezzar. If this be so. Know this, O king, if this is so, we will not serve your gods, we will not worship your gods. And just to make sure they understand, or Nebuchadnezzar understands where they're coming from, that you made. That you set up. And notice King Nebuchadnezzar's response. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed. This is one you need special effects for in the movie. But what's so fascinating is that Nebuchadnezzar's face becomes like the golden giant. Because the word in verse 19 expression in the original language, find that word expression, look at your text. The expression of his face, if you go to 131, flip over to 31, Nebuchadnezzar made an image. That word there, image, 
Same Hebrew word found in expression. It's a literary it's a literary mechanism to point to something that's very powerful. And that's this, that Nebuchadnezzar is becoming like his God. It would read like this. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the image of his face changed. What this literary maneuver is doing is pointing to a very personal and powerful point for all of us when we serve our idols. We become like them. You and I become like that which we hope in. I mean, if you hope in your job, you become like it. You know what you become like? Driven. Mechanical. You forget what day it is. Do I have a family? Oh, there's my wife. I have kids. I guess I do. When you hope in a relationship, you get absorbed into that person. And that person is like the puppet master. And that person has so much rule and control over you because you've made them your hope and you end up becoming like them. The point is, as we look in the Psalms and we look throughout the scriptures, the point is that they're the things we hope in that are outside the living God, they actually make us less human. In the Psalms, when the psalmist would come through and he would deride those that trust in idols, he'd say, look, they have eyes, the idols have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, these idols, but they don't really hear. They have mouths, but they don't really speak. They have hands, but they don't really feel. And then, and so does everyone who trusts in them. So there's a tremendous literary maneuver in here that's, oh, ouch, ouch, that hurt. Now, the furnace was probably built to melt and mold the gold. You ever wonder when you're reading this, where in the world did this furnace come from? It's just sitting out there in the Sahara. Another one of those ancient wonders of the world. Like the pyramids, right? (laughs) But where did it come from? Well, it probably came from whatever was making this giant of gold, because this giant was 90 feet tall. That's 30 yards for you football folks. It's three first downs. Nine feet wide, golden giant. The heat in the furnace was turned up. Notice it was turned up seven times hotter than normal. Why? Because what's taking place here again is that the temperature is starting to match the heart of the king. The temperature of the king's heart is being matched by the fire in the furnace. Turn it up. Turn it up. Fury. That's what's happening here. How do we know he's starting to look like his image again? Because his dear, mighty, best men, he has no regard for whatsoever. Take him, throw him into the pit, and I'm the king, and die doing it. Because I look like and am becoming like my golden image. Look at verse 20. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks. Jump down to 22. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, these are your mighty men. We know what the mighty men are like. 
How about the mighty men of David? You remember what they were like? You remember when David just just happened? He was sitting down. We talk about this in our family all the time. He's sitting down with his men and he just laments and says, you know, I wish I could have a drink from my own well. And his two of his mighty men said, we love our king. And David doesn't even know it. These two men break away. They fight through legions of Philistines to get to David's home, to go to David's well, to get David some water and bring it back for him. Mighty men. And when David got the water, what did he do? I'm unworthy. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm king, take him. Die. Now, the contrast could not be more clear than what's taking place here. Well, first of all, we need to solve 21. I mean, why is verse 21 so worried about the Babylonian fashion in that day? I mean, why all this talk about the clothing of the three friends? You wonder that? I mean, why is that? You get to look at 21. All of a sudden, we're told everything they're wearing. Another intentional point of the text. It's turning up the terror. It's heightening the horror because all the clothing that mentions is very flammable. And they're going to light up like a Roman candle. As soon as they get in there, cloaks, tunics, hats, and other garments, and they fall into the fiery flames. All right, the contrast couldn't have been greater. We have charred smoking and smelling bodies outside the furnace. We go inside the furnace and we have cheery, healthy, unscorched, unburned, three friends casually walking around inside the furnace. And what you should be asking yourself and what Nebuchadnezzar should be asking himself and what Babylon should be asking themselves and what Israel should be asking themselves, where is it safer is it safer outside the furnace or inside the furnace? That's the question. And of course, the answer in this text is where? Inside the furnace. You've got to be kidding me. You've got smoking, smelly, charred bodies on the outside, living, healthy, cheery bodies on the inside. So no wonder Nebuchadnezzar was so astonished and no wonder he jumps to his feet he was sitting on his portable throne in verse 24. Didn't we cast three men in there? I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So here we are. The third movement. What is the new hope here? What's the answer? The fourth man. Everything in this passage is moving you to the fourth man. Everything in this passage is moving every Israelite to the fourth man. Everything in this passage is moving even Nebuchadnezzar to the fourth man. Now, what's fascinating is that you, you wouldn't think at your first read. I mean, when you read the story, who do you think the main characters are? The three friends, right? But from beginning to end, the main protagonist is Nebuchadnezzar himself. Isn't that interesting? Now, in the fourth man, we actually get two descriptions of the fourth man from Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. 
If you look in verse 25, it says he, the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Now, if you and I are readers that disconnect ourselves from the unity of scriptures, and if we're readers that say, oh, it's, an, it's a neutral, the scripture has neutral data, neutral history, neutral grammar, neutral syntax, neutral literary form. In other words, you know, the, the Bible, it, it has neutral and, and uninterpreted and validations and worth and meaning. It's really, it's really not all connected. Then you'll read this and you'll say, oh, that's, that's, that's fascinating, like the son of the gods. But then if you see the scripture and the history of the scripture and the literary form in the scripture and that God is in grammar and he's in nouns and he's in syntax and he's in verbs and he's in modifiers and he's in poetry and he's in pictures and metaphors, that there is no word that was said of Samuel. No word falls to the ground and no word in the scripture falls to the ground. That God actually has a unity of intent in everything that's in the scripture. Then all of a sudden, looking like the son of the gods is like throwing you forward as a coming attraction to the real thing. Right? So you've got to make a choice. You'll make a choice here whether something can be in the Bible unintentionally. That there's no divine intent. There's no theology or divine interpretation of everything in the Bible. Or you could say, you know, that it's theologically neutral, historically neutral, literary neutral, and you assign the meaning. But if you go the route that the Bible is a unity of God's Word, a divine theological book that certainly has history and events and facts, but no neutral history events and facts, divinely interpreted events and history and facts, then all of a sudden, wow, the fourth man is like the son of the gods, right? All right, the second description is found in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Okay, here we have it. The fourth man is how God delivers the three friends. Remember, it's not God himself in terms of God the Father walking in there. When God actually delivers the three friends, he does so through a redemptive agent. So what's taking place here is that there's this redemptive agent that becomes the instrument or the means by which God saves the three friends. There's an actual, what we just looked at in our affirmation of faith, mediator. We have this, this person that mediates the redeeming and the rescuing and the saving and the salvation. I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, God could have said, hey, guys, just come on out of there, please. Yeah, you've been in there long enough. Let's go. I proved my point. He's already fainted. Come on, come on. But instead, he puts a mediator, a redemptive agent, a divine hero, a divine deliverer, a divine rescuer into the mix. Now, what Daniel has freely given us here, when you fast forward to the New Testament, is new hope in a divine redeemer. New hope in a divine mediator. 
new hope and a divine hero or deliverer, someone that actually gets into the thick of things with you. Not a distant mediator, hero, rescuer, deliverer, but one that gets into the midst of it, into the thick of it, and slugs it out with you. Okay? So what? regardless of, of who you think this fourth man is, whether you think it's the pre-incarnate Christ or whether you think it's an angel, I think it's the pre-incarnate Christ, personally. But regardless... When you get to the New Testament, the divine redemptive agent, the divine rescuer, the divine mediator, the divine hero is Jesus. Clearly. Right? You know how Matthew begins? I want you to turn over to Matthew. Just because I want you to see it. Look how Matthew begins. This is the first book in the New Testament, so just take Daniel, keep going to the right, you should hit it. What's the... Todd, I'm going to embarrass you, brother, but my kids told me this song. The song you sing about Malachi, what is it? Malachi, yeah. yeah. Go past Malachi, then hit Matthew. Okay, look at Matthew. Uh, notice how the book begins. It begins with a genealogy. It's a genealogy of Jesus Christ. In other words, where does Jesus come from? Where does this guy come from? Who's, what's his origin? What's his family history? Who's his father? Where does he come from? What's his family tree? But notice what Matthew does is he takes you intentionally... Remember, the general majority of the audience of Matthew are Jewish believers, Jewish people. Okay? That's the majority of the target audience being written to in Matthew. And it's interesting that he traces intentionally the readers so they see Jesus' genealogy, that it goes from Abraham, right, and David Remember what Luke starts? Luke starts with Adam. He takes it all the way back because he, he has a position he's trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate that Jesus just isn't the eternal Son of God, but that he's the covenantal Son of God, the second Adam. But when we get to Matthew, he starts at Abraham and David, but then all of a sudden he wants you to see the line is starting or is being picked up here, and it moves through Babylonian exile to safety at Joseph. Now, isn't that fascinating? I mean, when you get to verse 17, it even summarizes it for us. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the exile to Babylon, 14, and from the exile in Babylon to Christ were 14. And that's huge. Because then the angel... Once we get to Joseph, speaks to Joseph, and in verse, you can, if you want to follow along with me, you can look up at 20. 20. <clears throat> Remember, Joseph was going to divorce Mary because she was with child, and he was a man of integrity, but he was also a man of care. Notice he didn't publicly say, you ungodly person, I'm divorcing you in front of everybody. But he quietly was going to divorce her. Right? And the angel comes, and Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from his sins. He will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from the ultimate exile, the ultimate captivity, the ultimate bondage, the ultimate slavery, the ultimate fiery furnace. He will do it. Because he's the fourth man. 
Jesus is the fourth man. Jesus will save his people. And the application real quickly for all of us is hope in him. I mean, put your hope in the fourth man because he doesn't rescue you from a distance. Put your hope in him because he doesn't rescue from a distance. He rescues you from very up close. I mean, let's go back to Daniel again. The three friends are back. They're falling into the fire. We get an announcement of the clothes they're, they're wearing, and immediately they're tumbling into the fire. They fell into the fire. Listen to the language here. They fell into the fire. If you follow the pictures, again, of exile and bondage and slavery and death, you follow the two pictures of fire and the worm and also the pit. Jonah, remember when he was sinking, what did it say? He sunk to the foundations of the depths of Sheol. He fell into the depths. The pictures here, the three friends fell into the fiery furnace. They passed into the pit of consumption. Remember, fire and worm, what that means is it's an everlasting consuming, an everlasting chewing and gnawing and never running out of pieces of you to chew on. That's the picture of the worm and the picture of fire. Constant chewing and chomping, continual crunching and never running out of something to crunch. They traveled beyond the point of no return. They've been given up to the consuming flames. In other words, these three friends are lost souls. And the fourth man goes there with them. Brothers and sisters, you can hope in the fourth man and hope in him because he doesn't rescue you and redeem you and deliver you from a safe distance. He gets in there with you. He gets so close that he takes your place. You can't get any closer than that. You actually get pushed and pulled out of the way. I mean, when Isaiah says this and he looks at the fourth man, you know what he says? He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. Isaiah says, look, you want to know what the fourth man looks like. He doesn't save you from a distance. He actually gets in there and substitutes himself and takes your place. So, brothers and sisters, those of you that know your lost souls this morning, you can hope in him. And you can hope in him because he doesn't look at you from a distance. He gets into the fiery furnace with you and takes your place when you trust him. Okay. So those of us that don't know and are lost and we know we're lost in the wages of our sin and we know that we're in the fiery furnace because that's every single one of us. We come into this world in the fiery furnace. Every single one of us. So hope in him. Hope in him to take your place. Those of us that do know. And have hoped in Jesus. You need to put your hope in him because he promises that he will be with you no matter what. No matter what. I mean, God through Moses, when, when God was interpreting what happened in Egypt, God through Moses says, you know what happened in Egypt? You know what that was? It was a fiery furnace. Moses tells 
them in Deuteronomy. And then when Isaiah is getting ready to tell Israel, you know what's going to happen? You're going to go into Babylonian exile. And you know what's going to happen when you get in there? It's going to be a fiery furnace. But then he says, but know this, when you walk in the fiery furnace, it won't burn you. And all of Israel is saying, how? Answer, the following verse, for I will be with you. When the fourth man shows up in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3, God comes through on his promise. Can you picture that? When you were in Egypt, fiery furnace. You're going to go into Babylonian exile, fiery furnace. But when you get there, I'll be with you. And then in Daniel 3, three friends go into a literal fiery furnace and all of Israel is looking and they see a fourth man and they know that he kept his promise. And so Israel can know that while they're in this Babylonian exile, which this this micro picture of the macro Israeli experience, they could say, he's with us no matter what. And they put their hope and their trust in him again. Because maybe they started hoping in their military was going to get them out of Babylon. Maybe they were hoping in Daniel's wise wisdom that would finally win them over and they'd say, you know, you guys are better than us. Go back home. Maybe they were hoping in goods and kindred and relationships and finally just said, the heck with it. I'd rather just check out ESPN 24 hours a day. Right? That's what I'd like to do. You have your temptations, they had theirs. But the point here is hope in him. Now, how can you know for certain? This is what we're going to end on. How do you know for certain that he promises that he'll be with you when you enter in these earthly sufferings? Because Christians, we know now the bottom level flame, the everlasting flame, the ultimate captivity and bondage, the wages of sin is death. That's been taken care of. We know that as Christians. But we do know we now walk on the temporal level. We can lose life and limb. We can lose position and possessions. We can lose kindred and loved ones. How do you know when you're in those times and the dark cloud of your feelings and the unbelief blows in and says, he's not really going to be with you. He's not really going to come through for you. You are going to be suffering without him. And when that happens, what do you do? Well, here's the answer. The first answer is we've got to really believe and hope in a promise. He says he'll be with us. We've got to hope in that. We have to trust in that. We have to take him at his word. And we have to say, he did it here, and he did it here, and he did it here. He says he will. He's not going to not do it. The second answer is, he was already with you in the hardest part. Do you see that? What's happening is this, an argument from the greater to the lesser. The hardest part was going into the everlasting consuming fire. The easy part is being with you now. He took your place there. He certainly is going to be with you here. That's easy. This was the hardest. So it would go something like this. Being with you in your depression is nothing compared to descending into hell for you. As the Apostles' Creed describes it. 
being with you amidst being sinned against is nothing compared to the wrath and curse of God being poured out on the cross on him for you. Being with you while your heart is breaking is nothing compared to actually putting on human flesh for you. That's nothing. Nothing compared to that. Last one I have here is being with you amidst your struggle with sin is nothing compared to giving up his own son to die on the cross for your sin for you. That's the hardest part. It's nothing to be with you while you struggle. Not any effort at all. All right. I have a dear friend. His name is Lane. He's one of the toughest kids I know. He's now a grown man, but he was one of the toughest people I know. Um, I met him my first year as a campus minister at Brown University when I was working up there in campus ministry. I met him. He was a football and wrestling star from Florida. He ended up being the captain of the Brown football team. I watched him come to know Jesus. I watched him grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, my years that were there and, and now subsequent since then. When I was at seminary, he stayed with us for a week. He stayed with us for a week, and at this time, he was a very successful businessman in Florida. But he had this itch. And so he came to stay with us for a week while he tried, while he attended to the itch. So he shows up at the Dallas Cowboy football camp and says, I want to try out for your team. Just walked right on. Two weeks ago, his four-year-old son was airlifted to a Miami hospital for massive internal bleeding that required a blood transfusion. They go and they discover that this ruptured blood or whatever was taking place inside was a cancerous tumor, and there were several that had gone on in this little four-year-old's body. After a week of doctors and surgeons this past week, tests and operations and prodding and poking and tubes and air tubes and tubes everywhere in every part of your body, at the end of that week, uh, Lane wrote, I am now, quote, on permanent night shift. For three nights in a row, Austin has asked me to hold his hand while sleeping. Hmm. I push my convertible chair bed up next to his bed and reach over at him and grab his hand. As soon as I do, as soon as I do this, he falls asleep. If I pull my hand back during the night, he wakes up to notice. He immediately reminds me. My arm goes numb or asleep most of the time but recovers nicely once the day begins. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah. Jesus doesn't do distance. He doesn't do distance. Jesus doesn't know distance. So you can hope in him. Because he says he'll be there. Closer than holding your hand. Amen.